Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Cities live and die by housing policy and transportation policy. Everything else is tinkering around the edges. Today I'm talking transit with three people who have thought a lot about the current mess that we call the New York City transportation system. New York City Council Speaker and 2021 mayoral candidate Corey Johnson. Tom Wright, the head of the century-old Regional Plan Association. And journalist Nicole Gelinas, who's also a scholar of urban economics at the Manhattan Institute. Johnson wants to blow up the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the most basic body in charge of New York Transit. Today, the MTA board is appointed by the governor. Johnson would split off buses and subways into a new agency called Big Apple Transit, with the buck stopping clearly with the mayor, meaning him, he hopes. At the Regional Plan Association, Tom Wright has spent his career thinking about how to improve how cities run. The RPA also wants to break up the MTA and fundamentally rethink housing and transit in New York. Nicole Gelinas is the person best suited to keep Corey and Tom's big ideas in check. She believes in big changes as much as the other two, but for years she has told us again and again, we will not get a transit system worthy of our great city if we cannot get costs under control and our financial house in order. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority is the single most important factor in whether New York succeeds or fails. When New York had its crises of the late 60s throughout the 70s and then the early 80s, the crisis began with the city losing its way in transportation. When the transit system fails, New York fails. If you cannot get people to work, get people to school, the city's economy does not do well. Is the mission... And I'll say this to Tom, is the mission of the MTA unchanged from 65, or how has that evolved since then? The goal was to get people on public transportation, can't move everybody around by car. Is the mission the same, basically? Yeah, it basically is. And part of the problem is that there was this idea that there would be a synergy between having the subways and the buses and the Long Island Railroad and Metro North all under one umbrella and that we would have a kind of coordinated, integrated metropolitan system. The truth is the MTA, it ain't metropolitan because it doesn't look at the entire metropolitan region. It doesn't pay attention to New Jersey. It ain't really transportation because it's only parts of the system. The buses are running on city streets. And it isn't really an authority because an authority means to those of us in kind of public service, an authority should be a self-funded entity. Like the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey does not get annual handouts from New York and New Jersey. It's self-financed from the operations, whereas the MTA is un- unable to do that. And so it has to go hat in hand every year. Back so when you to- say the Port Authority is self-funding, you're talking about fees they charge at the gates at the, to the airlines at the airport. It, it makes an enormous amount of money from the airports and people drive across the Hudson River, and it takes that money and it runs the airports and those crossings, and it subsidizes the PATH system and the Port Authority bus terminal and other operations Not a lot of with debt. It. They don't have a lot of debt. They, they have, have a lot. huge amount of debt, but they're able to, to serve it with the cash flow that they generate. And what, and what percentage is uh, debt service? Oh, 
We're going to get to that in a moment, too. <laughs> uh, I think is it the same less, as the MTA? Uh, it's, it's, it's lower than the MTAs. I'm pretty sure Nicole's the expert on these issues. Yeah, I haven't looked at the Port Authority in a while. I think it's around 10%. That's what I would expect. So half of what the MTA is. Right. Now, some would wonder, and again, you can educate us about this as well, Nicole. At one point in the 70s, in the Ford to New York drop-dead period where the city files for bankruptcy, the city goes into receivership with Albany. Albany is in charge, and the city can't really do very much of what it wants to do in these large projects and, and, and beyond that. And I'm not trying to point a finger at City Hall or Albany, but was was it as bad before the receivership in 75, or did it, did it get worse once Albany was calling all the shots in the city? It got a little bit worse after 1975, and then it started to get better. The subway system failing was part of what led up to New York's financial distress and the takeover essentially by Albany and the federal government of New York's finances for uh, quite a long time, actually. And the problem with New York City's approach to the subway and bus system is that from the 1940s well into the 1960s and 70s, the city's focus was on keeping the fare down. There was a nickel fare for a long time, then it went up to a dime. It was less and less able to cover the operating costs. But mayors from Wagner to Lindsay, for very good reason, they wanted to keep the fare low because they wanted poorer people, working class people, middle class people to stay on the subway. They thought if we ride, if we increase the fare too much, more people are going to leave the city. They're going to get in their cars and go to the, the suburbs. But the problem with the focus on the fare was that there was no focus on capital investment, that they needed to increase the fare and they needed some tax revenues to buy new subways, air-conditioned subways. They were going to have to raise the money at some point. Right. Buy new buses, repair the tracks, repair the signals. And when does that change? When did they start doing that? Well, they, that changed in the early 1980s when finally trains were breaking down every 20,000 miles, very frequent uh, for someone to be kicked off the subway train and be stuck on the platform because the doors on the train wouldn't close. And so very frustrating commutes for people. And in the early 1980s, uh, Dick Ravitch, who was the MTA chairman at the time, convinced the governor, convinced the state legislature in Albany that they needed needed to approve a package of taxes to support the MTA, start to rebuild the capital. For capital investment. Yes. And the business community was on board with this. And it was a signal to New York that we're not going to give up on the city. We're going to double down and we're going to rebuild the physical infrastructure that the city needs to thrive again. And starting in the 80s, as soon as they made these first investments, population of the city started to grow, tax base started to grow again. And that was the only thing thing that made it possible for us to turn around the crime situation and other problems starting in the early 90s. How would you describe, let me ask this to Corey, what's the city's relationship to Albany now? Is it still in the same position it was in 75? No, I mean, there was a financial control board that was put in place to oversee New York City, and the Financial Control Act still exists. It hasn't been phased out, but we are not in the same position in any way as we were. Now, we are the economic engine for New York State, and I've been on the city council for five and a half years. I was elected in 2013, and the first budget process that I went through in the middle of 2014, our city's budget was around $73 billion with a B. The upcoming budget we're voting 
voting on in the next couple of weeks is now $92.5 billion, almost $20 billion in growth in less than six years. It used to not be that way in the times that we're talking about with the financial crisis, with the subways deteriorating, with Central Park uh, being an unsafe place. And so now we give more to Albany every year than we get back, just like New as York New York sta- sends to Washington more. Exactly. As New York sends to Washington. Donor state, they call we, it. We are a donor city to Albany, <laughs> and uh, New York State is a donor state to Washington. And so now, part of the reason why that's happened, since the Great Recession in 2009, when there was a major downturn, uh, we've seen 780,000 private sector jobs created in New York City. Unemployment's at an all-time low, 3.9%. Tourism, the highest level ever recorded last year, at over 66 million tourists. So if you looked at New York City on a piece of paper by the numbers, you would say, hot damn, the city's doing really well. But when you dig into the finances of the MTA, when you look at the number of homeless children in our school system, if you look at what's happening uh, just on poverty numbers in New York City, there is still a long way to go. But I think, as Nicole and Tom both said, the future of New York City, the way we can gain further economic growth is through investing in mass transit. It's the lifeblood of New York City. And the MTA has become a political hot potato where if something good happens, people stand up and say, I'm in charge. And when something bad happens, (laughs) they say, it's not me. Go to that board that no one knows a single person who serves on the board and blame it on them. And the MTA is far too important to be put in the middle like that, which is why I'm grateful we have someone like Andy Byford, who is a world-class guy who has come in and I think is moving the system in the right direction. Let me me highlight that. I mean, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you were talking about those bad old days, and I remember Central Park when you didn't go in after dusk. Back then, for every 10 jobs created in the metropolitan region around New York City, kind of southwestern Connecticut, Long Island, northern New Jersey, nine of them were outside New York, and one of them was inside New York City. It was a suburbanizing economy. As Nicole was talking about, New York was trying and failing to compete with the suburbs, and that's where all of the growth of jobs and and prosperity was occurring. For the last 10 years, not only has New York suddenly caught up with the rest of the region, today, nine out of 10 new jobs created are in the five boroughs of New York City, and it's parts of northern New Jersey and Long Island and Connecticut that aren't keeping up. And so this this economic boom has been really terrific for the city and its finances, but still Albany controls things. I mean, we just passed you know, congestion pricing, which we think is a great policy, which will mean that people will pay to drive into Manhattan south of 60th Street, and that will generate money for mass transit, and that's all very well and good. But the truth is the city had no control over this. It was up to Albany and it was up to legislators in Buffalo and Niagara to decide whether or not Do you think we... that's right? No, of course it's not right. No, but it's, but but it's a legacy of this of the bankruptcy. But I want to go around the, I want to go around the room and I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll continue with you Tom and that is about congestion pricing. Now I think congestion pricing is a horrible idea. Oh no, it's I think wonderful. it's an awful idea. No. And the reason I think it's an awful idea is that it punishes people who it, it's a continuation in my mind of my least favorite condition of living in New York, and that is the residents of New York come last. People who live here, and this is their home, and they pay taxes to live here as citizens of the five boroughs, they come dead last in the decisions that are made. And congestion pricing should not punish a person who lives in the five boroughs. But if you live on Long Island or Rockland or Philly or Delaware, they're commuting from all these different places to come to New York to do business, and you're going to ride single person in the car, we're going to hit you so hard you're going to pass out with the, with the, with the charge. <laughs> we're going to give. What's wrong with that idea? 
basically what's going through is very consistent with what you said. Most of the people who are driving into Manhattan south of 60th Street are coming from Westchester, from Fairfield County, from Nassau County. That's who that's the vast majority of the people who are going to be paying into the system in the first place. And right now they've been getting a free ride. And worse than that, there are some routes that are charged and others that are free. And so a lot of them are doing what we call toll shopping and they're driving out of their way to get in through the free Brooklyn Bridge. A quarter of the people on the BQE this morning really were coming from South Brooklyn, and the most direct route for them to get into Manhattan would have been the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. But instead, they drove across the BQE to get over to the Brooklyn Bridge and take the free crossing in. It, it makes no sense right now. As Tom said, if you take the the Battery Brooklyn Tunnel, you currently uh, pay a toll. But if you take the Brooklyn, Manhattan, or Williamsburg Bridge, you don't pay a toll. If you take the Lincoln and Holland Tunnel, you do pay a toll. So it, it was a piecemeal, screwed up approach that we're trying to bring some sanity to. And the real question here is you have to make these difficult public policy decisions when you have a system that is failing and needs a permanent revenue stream. And six million... I got a bunch I can give you. I got six, some ideas for six you. Six million people... Get rid of diplomatic parking, too. Well, uh, Make them, make them park yeah, in a garage. They've got the money. You got right. But, but six, six million people take the subways and buses every single day. And there's been an analysis done. If you look at Queens and Brooklyn and the Bronx, Staten Island is different because they don't have an extensive rail system. But if you look at the three outer boroughs, the vast, vast, vast majority, 97, 98% of people that are coming into Manhattan every single day below 60th Street are currently doing it by subway already. Mm -hmm. So let's improve the subway mm -hmm. service mm -hmm. with a reliable revenue stream mm -hmm. for those people. They'll follow. Yes. What Corey and Tom say is correct if, and this is a big if, if the MTA implements congestion pricing correctly yes. well, on yes. both sides of the equation, cutting congestion and spending the money on projects that actually improve the transit system. Mm -hmm. On the congestion side, they're already overwhelmed with requests for exemptions. The people who work for the MTA, they want an, a uh, an exemption for the con con congestion charge. I vote not, no. Exactly. Not just when they're on duty, but just when they're driving to their workspace. The other, they're going to see cats. On Broadway. Exactly. Okay. Other other city unions are going to want the same exceptions. Police, fire, sanitation, teachers driving their private cars into the city are going to want to be exempt from this charge. And, you know, they do wonderful work, but everyone who works in the city does wonderful work. Private sector, public sector, low paid, well paid. If we give one exemption, you almost have to approve them all because everyone has some reason why they shouldn't pay the charge. I mean, we all do. So either do no exemptions or don't have the program. Limit Otherwise, them. it's just Limit them it's as not much as possible. Work. The number of exemptions that are being lobbied for right now, congestion pricing will look like a gigantic piece of Swiss cheese. It'll be like every thing that happens in New York. The and tour that, bus operators are asking for one as if they don't cause any traffic congestion oh, in Manhattan. Now, are the web of contractors who are bidding for MTA projects, not just the Second Avenue debacle, but other things like that, is it a kind of a uh, 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 the usual suspects that are coming? Like, what prevents a person in charge, Albany or City Hall, to turn around and fire every single one of them and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get housing in New Jersey. I'm going to bring some bunch of Amish people here. 
<laughs> Robert Moses had them pitch tents on the frozen Zach's Bay, and the workers worked through the dead of winter so that the beach house at Jones, I mean, I read Carol's book, so the Jones Beach could open on time for that summer. I'm not sure we're going back to that. <laughs> well, no, I don't, well, I would go back to that. I would have them pitch tents on the frozen reservoir in Central Park. Maybe they could all live there. But my point is, is what's going to stop What's going to stop the hemorrhaging of these sickening contracts? Because as we all know, certain politicians, mostly north of the city, have a, have a very sweetheart relationship with the unions and want them to and want to appease them. What's your answer for how we lower these costs? Everybody benefits from the current system except for the average New Yorker. The contractors benefit because a lot of the global contractors, the companies that are actually good at doing this in France and Spain and Japan, they won't bid on our projects because the system just intimidates them and rightly so. Whenever they've bid, For example. They, they're afraid of our union work rules. France, Germany, Japan, all countries with first world work rules, they treat their workers well in terms of health care, in terms of working conditions, but they don't have the Byzantine work rules that are written How do we in, get rid of those work rules? It in the end, it takes political leadership. Like if you look at the Long Island Railroad work rules, for example, that are pushing up overtime where people are making quintuple their incomes in their last few years of work by essentially working around to the To manipulate their retirement. Yeah, these are due to the work rules. The work rules are, have been enshrined in the contracts for 50 years. In order to change them, the governor or the mayor, if we put the mayor in charge of uh, the MTA. But right now the governor the, is in charge of that, correct? Yes, the governor. Right now it's the governor. Governor's responsibility yeah. to address that, correct? The governor has to decide he'll take a strike, that he's willing to take the uh, short-term pain of people having a much more difficult time What prevents him work. from firing every single one of them and replacing them with, and starting another car? What prevents an emergency financial measure in which a state or city entity can sit there and go, we just don't have the money anymore? I really don't care how you feel about it. You work for us. I'm not asking you what to do. I'm telling you what to do. Yeah, Why doesn't it, that happen? Why? In the end, it comes down to the political willingness. They want to donations take from those unions. The short-term hit. It's not even so much donations. I mean, Cuomo is very close to the transport workers union, which is the subway and bus union. Not so much because he needs the money, although money is always useful, but because he wants the votes. This is a very reliable voting block. A vote is worth a lot more. Well, the more. money goes hand in hand with getting yeah, the votes. Yeah, a vote right. is worth a lot more than a dollar. I mean, they spend dollars for votes. So mm -hmm. if you can get the votes directly, that's much better from the governor's perspective. TWU, this union, helped the governor tremendously during his primary fight with Cynthia Nixon a few years ago. But I just want to jump in here, and I'm not saying I don't believe this is what Nicole was saying, but I want to be clear. I don't think, I think it would be easy to scapegoat and vilify the workers who work on the subway and buses every single day. And for a lot of these folks, this has been a pathway to the middle class, to a pension, to health care. And I don't think they're the real problems here. I think part of the problem here is that you've had at the MTA for years and years and years, major, major mismanagement. You haven't had oversight on contracting. I'll give one primary example. Uh, Eastside Access, which is the uh, mega project which is going to connect uh, the Long Island railroad to Grand Central. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that project is $11 billion over budget. 
$11 billion over budget. It's not $11 billion over budget because of the subways and bus workers. It's because of the broken, collusive contracting system and bid system that exists. The amount to re-signal the entire subway system so that we could have state-of-the-art signaling and cut down on delays is $9 billion. So we could have taken that $11 billion in the cost overrun and already re-signaled the entire system. The broken, and gotten closer to the subway we need for this it, economy. Exactly. We can't even have a conversation right now about expanding the subway system. you got a few stations on 2nd Avenue. you got the one station at Hudson Yards, which was unique. But you can't have a conversation about the Utica extension in Brooklyn and the other places to expand where there are transit deserts when you get up to Fresh Meadows and South Brooklyn and other places because we are constantly treading water and trying to just keep things going and you can't have a conversation about moving forward and provide a little more context eric garcetti the the mayor of los angeles right now he was able to pass by selling it to the voters a multi-billion dollar bond on subway expansion now la as you know is not a subway city but they're trying to become one rahm Emanuel just left office in chicago and one of the highlights of his final term was improving subway service there Andy Byford was in Toronto, Sydney, London, places where they did this type of expansive work. And we can't have that conversation in New York because of how broken the system is. Now, let me just interject. You announced you're running for mayor. And of course, I I, I don't fault you for wanting to not scapegoat the uh, union transit workers and say that the problem was more the uh, contracting process and so forth. But nonetheless... Many unions get into that whole gouging thing where it's like, you know, quadruple overtime to for the last three years to get the sweetheart pension. Do you agree that's got to stop? Yeah, but part of the problem right now, and this has been, uh, I think, part of the issue with the very public fight you've seen on the MTA board and with the governor on the Long Island Road overtime, it's hard to defend those overtime numbers. But these, these are the overtime rules that the MTA set up themselves. So the union is taking advantage of the rules that were given to them. But, but, but I, I appreciate that. I'm saying if you set up a set of rules, of course they're not going to say no. But eventually someone's got to say no. I have found that in most instances, at least recently, and it's different now because economic times have been going well, so the city has a lot of money, uh, but most unions are willing to make a sacrifice, and there is a trade that gets involved. They may take a hit on health care, but they don't want a big hit on the pensions. It's always a sort of a little bit of a trade back and forth, and I think if you sit down and you have a conversation and you say, this is what we need, and the public understands what the need is, I think most times Times, uh, most of these union leaders are willing to do that. I think John Samuelson at TWU is actually a pretty pragmatic guy, and he's someone that you can work with. He's not someone who's out there being irresponsible, and I think you need to sit down, get around a table. But again, I want to get back to the big thing here, which is the MTA is set up to deflect any level of accountability. So we can talk about all these super important issues on repairing contracting and on negotiating with unions and on expanding the subway system, but until you get down to the fundamental issue of singular accountability and responsibility. Everyone is always going to be able to point fingers, which is why I call for municipal control. I agree with you. Piggybacking on that, the roads in the city of New York, it is appalling. The roads are better in Lima, Peru than they are in New York City. They finished fixing the roads on my block. And two weeks after they had the gutted, pitted, bombed out, 
preparations done, I had a and, they, and they went and laid the roads on there. Two weeks later, they started cutting it up for some utility, started chopping it up again. I had yeah. a meeting about this yesterday, this very topic. Not to, and not to get too granular, but one of the big issues, if we're talking about contracting that New York City's run into, is that when you want to restripe the roads after the paving, you can't restripe the roads for weeks, which is like the most basic thing a government should be able to do in a city. You can't. Why? Because none of the striping is done by the city. The striping is done by outside private contractors who have set up a collusive industry on how to gouge the city by all working together. And so these are big issues that affect basic municipal services. New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. With him, our Regional Plan Association President and CEO Tom Wright and journalist Nicole Gelinas. If you like thinking about how New York works, you'll love my conversation with Martin Horn, who's had just about every job imaginable in New York City corrections, including head of the prison system, which led him to some unusual opinions. I would legalize drugs across the board. You would legalize uh, which after, drugs? After f- all of them. You would legalize all drugs? Yes. Yes. That's a pretty... Yeah. I, well, that's, <laughs> I'm I know, stunned. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> say speechless. that. I wouldn't say that while I worked for a governor or a mayor right. who was an elected official. Now, why wouldn't you say that then as opposed to now? Because I had a mortgage to pay. The rest of my conversation with Martin Horn at heresthething.org. WNYC Studios is sponsored by Soundstage, the new podcast anthology from Off-Broadway's Playwrights Horizons. Enjoy free episodes, each of which is a standalone original play or musical from America's most celebrated storytellers. With Soundstage, great theater is wherever you are, even while social distancing. Find Soundstage wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at soundstagepodcast.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I'm joined by journalist Nicole Gelinas, New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, and Tom Wright, President and CEO of the Regional Plan Association. Wright, in the middle of another topic, just had to turn back to the insane amount New York pays to build and maintain its subways. I I have to hit this issue on why things cost so much. It's impossible to defend the work rules uh, of the unions and some of the things that drive up the cost. We've got to get more competition in with contractors and other things. But the entire system is broken from front to end. The procurement process in New York State is so ridiculous that contractors will be hired to build a piece of the Second Avenue subway. They will know that it's going to change, but it's going to take a year for the procurement process to effectuate that change. So they build something knowing that at the end of it, they're going to be told to rip it up and rebuild it again under some new way. But they have to do it. And the contractors, if they don't do it... How often is that happening? uh, All the time. All the time. There were thousands of change orders on the Second Avenue subway in the last year or two to opening it up. Also the World Trade Center subway hub? All of these things. That was like a big debacle, correct? The subway hub. Here's another example of one. 
running the number one line through the World Trade Center site, it was a kind of historic achievement of the MTA to restore that service. And then the MTA basically said to the Port Authority, you can rebuild this new path station at Fulton, but you're going to continue to run our subway through it. The cost of doing that was hundreds of millions of dollars when any rational situation would have looked at it and said, you know what, we're going to shut this down for a couple months and we're going to then rebuild the whole thing and it'll save us an enormous amount of money. But essentially you had kind of the MTA and the Port Authority, both state entities, kind of saying, well, it's not my dollar, so I don't care. You just have to go do it. And that's the kind of failure of the $11 billion overrun that Corey talks about with Eastside Access. Close to a half a billion dollars because New York State has ridiculous insurance protections. I'm sure that if we just adopted the California protections, that people would still have plenty of protection here in New York, but we add hundreds of millions of dollars to the cost. Cuomo raided the subway's state of good repair money for pet projects, correct? Is that on a... <laughs> well, when did that happen? Well, you, you were very critical of that, correct? We were, we were critical of... The truth is, depreciation is not just a kind of financial accounting idea. It is cables giving out. It is wheels giving out. And it's not sexy. It doesn't add... It doesn't give you a big ribbon cutting. But those kinds of basic investments in the system have to keep going. And that's what got gutted. And that's what we saw over the last decade or so, kind of money being taken out of. And that's what suddenly led to the situation of the crisis. Now, Nicole, if you were given some czar-like position... Uh, of the biggest cost controls that you would implement, what would you do? More transparency. And I know that that's a cliche, but I'll give you a couple of specific examples. 40% of a project's cost is buying materials, cement, steel. These are global commodities, and the global price is known. You can look in the newspaper and see what's the going price for, for Especially iron in New York. <laughs> right, but these are part of these contracts where the contractors go to subcontractors and buy the materials. And so the cost of the raw materials is not known by the public. Every single materials purchase, the volume and the price should be disclosed to the public and benchmarked to a global index. And so why we, isn't it? Well, why isn't it? Because the system as it is benefits everybody. But contractors should not be making a profit on the portion of the contract that involves materials purchases because they're not adding any – They're not entitled to a markup right, on they're, that? They're not, at, they're not adding any value to that. So they do get a markup on it, but they shouldn't. That's one thing is making sure that there's not a lot of padding and corruption in the materials purchase process. And the other thing would be – all of these construction contracts between the contractors and the construction unions, iron workers, unions, steel workers, carpenters, all of these contracts should be public. Right now, the contractors and the unions keep these contracts and these work rules private because the, they say these are just arrangements between private parties. I mean, if Tom and I signed a contract, it's really nobody's business. But in this case, the public is the Republic final money is payer. Right. If the MTA is spending $12 billion on the East Side Access Project, $5 billion on the Second Avenue subway, the public should know every single one of these work rules, and each work rule should have a cost item next to it. This costs us $50 million a year. Just getting those two pieces of information would get us a long way to reform, because all of these things are connected. You know, someone might say, Long Island Railroad Union has nothing to do with 
construction unions. But if one set of unions gives up something, the other sets of unions knows that it has to give that thing up too. Mm -hmm. TWU is never going to sign a deal that is less generous than the Long Island Railroad contract mm -hmm. because one side looks like a chump, one side looks like you got right. a better deal. So all of these things have to Everybody be addressed. Everybody has to pitch in. Right. All done together. Um, now for Corey, just to change the arc here just a bit. What would you do if you won to improve the city's relationship with the governor? Well, I would say that uh, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think one of the things that you need to do in politics and in life is you need to be able to relate to people and to maybe use a little bit of charm sometimes. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that in a hollow, empty way. No. What I mean is, I think part of the job of being mayor of the city of New York is when you saw uh, Ed Koch standing at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge during the transit strike, shaking people's hands, there was a little bit of theater involved. When you see people out there when he was screaming, how am I doing? Part of what the job of mayor is, is making sure the city is running in the right way so that you don't have homeless encampments, so that the subway isn't breaking down every day and you're working with Albany to get that done, so that you don't have 110,000 homeless children during one point of the year in the city of New York. You need to work on those issues, but you also have to be a cheerleader for the city of New York. You have to do both of those things. And I think if you do that, if the, if the public relates to you in that way, not just on an operation level, but they like you. They like how you're championing and cheerleading New York. I go around, last night I spoke at the YMCA gala at Cipriani on 42nd Street, and I stood up and I said, New York City is the greatest city in the world. We are the city that gave the world J-Lo and Barbara Streisand. We are the city that is the <laughs> That's home. That's a start. We are the city of the home of the Lemon Ice King of Corona. We are the city right. with the Statue of Liberty, not that far from here, with a torch as a beacon to immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers. I think the disconnect is, in that budget number I gave you from $73 billion to $92 billion, $19 billion in revenue growth in five years, and you still have people who feel like they're being screwed. You still where's that money coming from? The economy. The economy's been humming. It's that humming that they could raise it by 20%, That's 25%. A, but it's almost a 30% growth. 30% growth. You've seen prosperity. So, if you again, if you look at 780,000 private sector jobs, 3.9% unemployment, the highest number of tourism ever recorded, crime, homicides at an all-time low since 1951 when crime numbers started to get reported. And New Yorkers right now, the mayor is not getting credit for that because you actually do need to cheerlead those things. But you need to cheerlead those things and at the same time say, I know that it is totally screwed up that we have a record homeless population in New York City, that NYCHA is crumbling, public housing is crumbling before our eyes, that the subways are in a state of disrepair, and that I'm going to go out there and use all of that record growth that we've seen to address this crisis. Uh, there are things that I don't agree with Michael Bloomberg on, like the third term, but he said something which I do agree with him on. He said, and this is why I was a critic of the Amazon deal, he said, if you want to attract businesses and jobs to New York City, you need to do three things. Things. Number one, you need to have low crime. Number two, you have to improve the school system. And number three, and this is what we're talking about, you have to invest in infrastructure and public spaces. If you do those three things, 
businesses will come to New York, people will come to New York, and the economy will grow. And the disconnect is, with $20 billion in growth, just in our city's budget, in five and a half years, that prosperity is not being felt, and people are like, how come the trash cans are overflowing on my corner? How come public housing is falling apart? How come the street sweepers can't have a camera on their truck, and when they pull up behind you and you haven't moved, they take a picture and email it to the traffic Mm -hmm. police, and you get a ticket. But but I want to say, but I want to say, well, I mean, I'm... Don't get me started about how much I want to point the finger at Albany, but what did RPA think of the Amazon deal? We were supportive of the Amazon deal, Mm -hmm. I will admit. Uh, Don't love the idea of of public finance incentives, although most of the ones that they were talking about were ones that are readily accessible to any company that's coming in. And and I think that there should be a re-examination of that entire entire situation. Everybody that I know that lived out there said, this thing is going to come out here and the speculative buying of of, of housing is going to drive all of our costs through the roof and ruin our neighborhood. Well, that's true, but I want to add one thing, not to interject on Tom. Google, who what is about 25 blocks north of where we're sitting in the studio, right. which is the biggest employer in my council district. They've created almost 15,000 jobs in the last decade. How much subsidy and incentive have they received from the city of New York? Zero. So if you do in a precedential nature saying to Amazon, we're going to give you $2.3 billion in non-discretionary subsidy and incentive and a $500 million cash grant, which could go to the subway system, by the way, a $500 million cash grant to build your headquarters. What's going to keep Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Chase, Google, Facebook, name a company to, to come back three years from now and say, we want the same deal Amazon got. Right, right. I, 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 go ahead, I can't defend these kinds of deals. And I can remember when Governor so Pataki essentially said, because, because I, I would say right now that's kind of the way the game is played. The, the rules of the game ought to be changing. But I do think that that was what was on the table. Nicole. But isn't right now the time to change the game? If not now, when? I mean, the Amazon deal was a classic 1970s massive subsidy to build buildings. In the 70s, under Mayor Lindsay, uh, under Mayor Beam, these things were more understandable because people were fleeing the city. No one wanted to locate their business here. We had to give something away just to keep some kind of the core. Today, the problem is the opposite. We don't have catastrophic failure anymore. We have a catastrophic success. And so to be giving subsidies away when we need every last tax dollar for yeah. the infrastructure just doesn't make right. any sense. It, it, Amazon has been their entire business model for 22 years has been to avoid paying their taxes, often legally. You know, they're not breaking the law, but they don't want to pay taxes in Texas. They never wanted to pay the sales taxes. And so they were competing unfairly with bricks and mortar retailers for years and years. And this was just another uh, game that they were playing. They miscalculated this one and they sort of took their blocks and went home. And so the city will be fine without Amazon, but only if we stick to Corey's three things. Actually, though, in the absence of an Amazon and a kind of large growth there, what's most likely to happen is it's going to convert to what's been happening, which is residential development, which is more residential on the waterfront and people moving in there and then trying to cram onto the subways to get into jobs in Manhattan. 
what we need to do actually, and, and I think uh, Nicole's Put the jobs out there. Is put the jobs out there. Nicole's comment, catastrophic success is absolutely and right. Why wasn't it done in the Bronx we, where they we, really need the we ought to be. Well, hell, look, and, and this might be anathema here. I think if Amazon had gone to Newark, it would have been even better. They although New Jersey to offered too, anyway, way too much. Right. You know, actually kind of spreading those jobs around so that we take advantage. The trains run in both directions, and we ought to be taking full advantage of the capacity that we have by balancing growth. And yes, the Bronx is the place where it would be even better for them to go than there in Long Island I, I, Amazon should still come to New York City. I want them to come. There is office space available down in Lower Manhattan at the World Trade Center. Sure. There is office space available at Hudson Yards. It hasn't been leased up yet. There is office space available. It's going to be available in Midtown East, where we just rezoned it for more Class A office space. There is a glut of office space available. Amazon should come to New York City. They should play by the same rules as everyone else, Google and other Fortune 500 companies that don't get a Hunger Games-like sweetheart deal. The European <laughs> Union bans these type of contests. They should come here and they should come and they should say, wherever we're going, we want to invest in that local subway station and improve it and make it better for our workers. We want to be a good corporate citizen in New York City. I'm not against Amazon coming to New York City. I'm, I'm against setting up this Hunger Games-like contest, which doesn't benefit the city. Real quickly, give me uh, the next mayor in terms of the, 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 the problems with the MTA, the next mayor should do what's their first priority or two? The next mayor's got to come in, make sure congestion pricing gets implemented in the right way, and make sure that we fully fund Andy Byford's fast-forward plan, because that's the right plan. He needs $40 billion to do it, and we can't be nickel and diming him on that. Senor, your idea. I think uh, as someone who is uh, contemplating a run for mayor, I think you need to come up with big, bold, creative, outside-the-box ideas. Bloomberg did it when he called for mayor control of the school system. de Blasio did it when he called for universal pre-K. I think the future of New York City, the lifeblood of our economy, is stabilizing, transforming, expanding our mass transit system. And so I think we need now a better governance model, singular accountability, not a deflective model, which is what the MTA uh, garners right now by the way it's set up. And so I think we have to talk about municipal control of the subways and buses tied in to a master plan of the streets of New York City. In London, the person that oversees the tubes and the buses is also the Department of Transportation Commissioner who oversees the city streets. How would you plan to do that with Albany when, if, when you become mayor? Well, typically... If you in, become mayor, I'm sorry. In two, that was a slip. It's okay. In 2001, uh, when Bloomberg won, he got mayoral control in the first six months of his first term. When de Blasio, What do you attribute that to? I think there's a little bit of a mandate that is given to a new mayor after they've won, if they have run on a big idea, and if, this is also a key part, if they have convinced the public it is the right thing to do ahead of time, which typically they have if they've won the mayoral election. And I think that's one of the big things. So I'm going to keep talking about municipal control, transforming our streets, breaking our car culture, focusing on pedestrians and cyclists, and having a livable city. Uh, and I saw the, uh, I have to mention that I saw that on your phone you were getting a call from Andy Byford, who we begged to do this show, who stiffed us, but being British, he did it in the most elegant way. He <laughs> stiffed us in an, a, a really plummy and very, very English way. He's a great guy. Your big ideas for the MTA, Nicole? The next mayor should be riding the subways and the buses every day and should be walking the streets. We, we need much faster bus service, which means we need zero tolerance for double-parked cars, double-parked trucks, 
checks. Every single one of these vehicles should be slapped with a ticket every single time they violate the bus lane. We need more bike lanes to the extent that we can get people. What about road off. closures? Well, that yeah, that's another point. buses only. Yeah, I think parts of Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue, Sixth Avenue, these avenues should be for buses, bicycles, and for Certain yellow times of the day. Yellow taxis, because yellow taxis already paid the congestion fee in in terms of paying a million dollars in some cases for the medallion, and also at at some point, you know, fifteen years in the future, a free autonomous bus that does a fixed route that comes every minute. So if you're going by Rockefeller Center, no private cars and things like we pedestrianized Times Square. That's been a success. If we hadn't pedestrianized Times Square, we would have to do it today because of the risk of vehicle terrorism. We should be doing more of that in Rockefeller Center in Lower Manhattan. But coming back to the MTA, the one thing that the mayor controls now is the streets. Use the streets for much better, faster bus service. And if the MTA doesn't provide it, hold them accountable. I would have alternate side of the street deliveries. So if you're on the east side of the street or the north side of the street, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and your deliveries on the other side is Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday to cut down. On the, you, you know, we want people to have their goods delivered, but they can't do it whenever they want to. I mean, the double parking for, I mean, I've, I'll name one company. Who's more egregious than UPS? They'd pull their truck over the open grave while you're at your mother's funeral <laughs> if they could. <laughs> they would like to move to a district system and, and Look, UPS could actually be part of the solution there. I'll, I'll throw that out there. UPS would like to be biking the everything within a couple blocks, but they got to work with the city, and the management of the streets just hasn't been there. But I want to just finish by saying, obviously, thank you to all three of you. We could have gone on and on and, 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 and swerved into other topics. But thank you all, because uh, in my lifetime, I have never seen people in New York more demoralized. It used to be there was a it seemed that there was a plan when you built buildings. We're at another one of those stages where we're tearing down 10 or 15% of the city, I'm exaggerating perhaps, to build new things, but new what? Since you brought up the construction, that's another problem with the streets. These construction companies that are building these super tall towers, they only pay $150 a month to close off a whole lane of the street, sometimes for two and three years. So what's the incentive to move briskly right, there? They, they should be paying market price for closing that lane of, of street and get the building built faster. If you can't do it faster, then you've got to pay this money, and a good chunk of that money should go towards the transit system. I think if you become the mayor of New York, she should have some huge position I in agree. your administration, <laughs> and he should be your spokesperson. <laughs> I agree. That was Corey Johnson, Nicole Jelinas, and Tom Wright. Here's the Thing is a production of WNYC Studios. <laughs> <laughs>